ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. My guest today uh, on Tea with the High Commission is Sir Philip Rutnam, who is the Permanent Secretary of the Home Office in the UK, which is a role he's been doing since 2017. Before that, he was our Permanent Secretary or Chief Executive Equivalent at the Department for Transport. He is the Civil Service Disability Champion, uh, was knighted last year, and in addition to his work in the Civil Service, has also worked at Ofcom, Morgan Stanley, and he's represented the UK at the European Investment Bank in Luxembourg. He's here in New Zealand on a, um, visiting to talk with his New Zealand counterparts about a whole range of cooperation on security issues. So no my mai, welcome Philip, lovely to have you with us. Thank you, thank you, it's great to be here Laura, I'm really enjoying my visit to New Zealand. I wonder if we can start Philip by talking about um, the work that you do, the work, the remit of the Home Office, because the brief of the Home Office is very broad and doesn't really have a comparator here in New Zealand. So can you tell, you, tell us a little bit about your role and the responsibilities that you, that you oversee in, in the organisation? Yeah, sure. So as, uh, as Permanent Secretary, I'm the most senior official in the department, so not a political appointment, not a political role, but I'm the most senior professional responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the organisation, making sure that we're providing the best possible support and advice to ministers who are the political decision makers and also making sure that we implement their decisions, including through the delivery of some really important public services. So it's a, it's a busy role. Uh, the Home Office, as you say, is a, is a big department. We've got a broad remit. We've got about 35,000 people. Um, many of those are, are involved in the delivery of public services, particularly running the border, um, operating the immigration system, uh, operating in-country, uh, the immigration rules that we have. So a whole range of different functions associated with border, immigration, citizenship. But the Home Office is also responsible for uh, leading coordination across government around counter-terrorism and protecting the public in tackling crime, particularly serious and organised crime, and in supporting the police. So it's a broad remit. The overarching mission of the organisation is to keep the country and its people safe and to keep the border secure. Uh, but to do that, we deliver a whole range of public services, both directly and indirectly, particularly through partners such as the police. Tell me then, why, are you, why have you come to New Zealand? I'm here because New Zealand is a really, really important partner for the Home Office. Of course, the relationship between the UK and the New Zealand, uh, between the UK and New Zealand as a whole is a profound relationship, a really strong relationship based in uh, common values, uh, based in a shared history. But in relation to the Home Office, we face a whole range of common threats and problems and also opportunities that we need to work on together to keep the country, uh, both our countries safe, the citizens of both our, uh, both our countries safe and to work together effectively in dealing with problems um, uh, that could start anywhere in the world but where the effect could be felt either in New Zealand or in the UK. 
And of course, the modern threats are such that geography and distance are no barrier to some of the threats facing our countries, and we need to cooperate incredibly closely internationally to deal with some of those shared threats. That's absolutely right. So it used to be the case that, um, uh, to take policing, for example, that uh, a police force would be dealing with a harm, uh, somebody who's been hurt, or some property which has been affected, and the, the perpetrator of that harm would be local. But now, the source of the harm can be anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world. So actually, in, if you are to keep your home country safe, international cooperation, working with partners around the world, especially partners like New Zealand, who share the same values, the same outlook on the world, is all the more important. It's only becoming more important year after year. And you're here, of course, um, in the year that uh, New Zealand had its terrible terrorist attack, so March, March 15th in Christchurch, and shortly after, of course, the London Bridge attack in the UK. So counterterrorism is a very important area of cooperation for all of us. It, it, it absolutely is, and that's been right at the top of my agenda here in New Zealand. After the terrible, terrible events in Christchurch, uh, the UK was amongst the very first countries in the world to offer its support to New Zealand through the Christchurch call. And one of the messages I have been uh, offering here in New Zealand is just to convey the importance for the UK of continuing to support New Zealand as it develops its response, uh, whether to Christchurch or to other threats that the country faces. Counterterrorism is a shared interest. It's a shared problem. Uh, as you say, in the UK, tragically, we have also faced, uh, we faced a series of uh, very significant terrorist incidents in 2017. And just recently, just a, a few days ago, in fact, we had a, a, a terrible event on London Bridge. Um, and we've been very grateful for the support and assistance provided by colleagues around the world, uh, including uh, here in, in New Zealand. And some of our conversations over the past couple of days have been about how you always need to be careful not to be responding to the threat that's just happened in the past or the attack that's just happened in the past. You need to be future-proofing your responses, your systems, and almost need to be threat agnostic because you never quite know how different security threats are going to evolve, what form they're going to take. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I think that's a really interesting topic. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's really easy to find oneself drawn too much into responding what ha to what has just happened. It's very important to understand what has just happened and to draw the right, right lessons from it, but it's also very important to look ahead and to, ma and to make an assessment, which has to be an evidence-based assessment, of how the threat, the different types of threat that countries like the UK or New Zealand could face, how those are likely to continue developing. Mm. So um, we uh, have been talking uh, quite a lot. I've been talking in London, talking here about the threat assessment, the outlook, trying to look ahead, not just look, look into the past. Um, it, it's a really important piece of our work. And often what we find is that some of the fundamental factors that affect the threat environment, they really are... Um, uh, they're, they're global in nature. They're the way in which technology is developing, the way in which technology, of course, huge force for good in the world, in, in our uh, economy, in our social lives, but also uh, technology can be used in a way that was never possible before to spread, uh, to spread harm, to project evil. Uh, uh, people who want to do bad things to us 
will use technology in subtle and innovative ways. And that's why we always need the best possible people in the IT space, in the tech space, to be keeping so that we're staying abreast of those who are wishing to do harm and using, using modern technology in those harmful ways. Absolutely, and not just in the tech space too. We need people in my sort of organisation, we need policy colleagues, we need analysts, we need people who can uh, work with deep experts in technology to try to make sure we have the right translation out of technology into policy making, into decision making, into the way in which we're, we're thinking about how we develop our organisation as a whole. Now tell me, you're, right now you're a very senior civil servant, but you've worked in the past in both private and public sectors. And so I wonder, you know, if we can reflect on that and the, the different contrasts of different working environments, and what is it right now that really drives you in your current role? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? So what gets me out of bed in the morning is really the importance of the work that we do. Um, so in the UK, the Home Office is a very important organisation. It has a critical mission, as I've said, of keeping the country safe. We deliver vital public services day in, day out. It's a huge privilege, in fact, to be involved as I am in the leadership of that organisation in trying to make sure that we do things um, we do things well and, if possible, we do things excellently, that we're always striving for improvement. It's a huge, huge privilege. I have had, as you said, the benefit of working in the private sector as well as the public sector. I enjoyed working in the private sector. I really um, benefited, uh, I thought, from uh, understanding how in the private sector um, complexity is often the enemy to um, uh, running an organisation. Of course, there is complexity, but there's a huge drive to making things uh, as simple as possible and replicable in a way that you don't necessarily encounter in the public sector. So in the public sector, we tend to uh, often to hire people, employ people who are really interested in and attracted by the challenges of complex problems. And uh, one of the things I think we can take from the private sector is the importance of driving to reduce complexity, pr provide really clear and simple answers where we can, and answers that can be replicated, achieve scale, rather than approaching everything as a, as a kind of almost a bespoke problem. So I, I, I thought it was a gr I had a great time in the private sector, really interesting, but it lacked, for me personally, it lacked that sense of a, of a public service mission that you will find in an organisation like the Home Office. And 35,000 people is a huge organisation. And, of course, an organisation is only ever as good as the, the people uh, that work for it and, and the way that they are motivated and inspired to do their work to their best of their ability. Tell me about that, then, how you... In, in, in leadership terms, how do you lead an organisation of that scale in a way that people feel engaged by the leadership and they feel that they have that sense of direction um, and vision of what they're trying to achieve? Because, of course, you have people working in a whole range of different fields, don't you? So I tried to think about this in terms of three Cs. Um, clarity, communication, and caring. So uh, it's really, really important that we have a clear sense of what we are there for what our mission is, and also how, as public servants, we should act, what sort of standards of behaviour we should hold ourselves to. So I think there's a really important point, first of all, in leading such a large and complex organisation about having a really clear statement of the why and the how, why we're there and how we should act. 
The second thing, the second C I'd pick out is communicating. Uh, uh, one thing I've learned is, uh, uh, in leading large complex organizations for some time now is you almost can't over communicate, uh, but the way in which you communicate needs to be kept live and fresh. Um, uh, so there are only so many global emails from the top of the organization that colleagues are going to read. So you should look for different ways of communicating, engaging people in a, as at all possible, a lively way. So we try to make a lot of use of video, uh, online video content. We try to, we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time with my senior leadership team at multiple levels. Um, I've been having all through the Brexit process in, in the UK, I've been having conference calls with the top one or 2,000 people in the organization to try to talk to them about what's happening, what I know, what I don't know, try to be as open as possible. So communication. And then the third C is, is perhaps the most difficult of all, because I, I use the word caring. And uh, we all absolutely care about the mission we have in the organization, but we do also need to care about our people and communicate that caring. And yes, of course, it's a challenging environment. I expect people to work hard, but I also want to give people the sense and the reality that I am on their side. I want my people to give of their best, to be their best, and I and the other leaders in the organisation are there to help them give of their best. And that's a really nice segue, thank you, uh, into your, your work as the civil service champion for disability. And I think we've been through quite an evolution over the past decade or so in our workplaces in the UK around our attitudes to disability and the whole breadth of what that might be, but also our attitudes to people as a whole. You know, sometimes people talk about bringing your whole self to work or however you phrase it. It's about, you know, being able to... Um, live with all the complexity that people have with caring responsibilities or mental health issues, be able to be at work and feel supported and understood at work. And I think that's really important. So can you tell me what, in, in the course of your time as, as civil service disability champion, what has struck you the most? What have you learned the most? And what do you think we can all take as organisations um, as lessons from that? So I've learned so much, I would say. So I've been the disability champion in the civil service now for um, about five years. And it's a role, as, as, you, as you've implied, it's about the civil service as a workplace. We employ over 400,000 people uh, in the UK and around the world. So it's a large, large organisation. And we've set ourselves the challenge of being the most inclusive, diverse and inclusive employer in the UK. Um, and disability, disability inclusion is absolutely key to that. Mm. We have just under 15% of the working age population in the UK who would identify as having some kind of long-term condition, some sort of disability. And we want the civil service to be leaders in the UK in creating an environment in which people with any, num any different type of condition can thrive and realize their full potential. And I've learned so much through this process. I, I began, um, uh, I took on the role as disability champion without any particular personal background or immediate family background. That's changed a little bit in the last five years. But still, what I really learned has been through meeting colleagues at all sorts of different levels, in all sorts of different parts of our amazing system, with a whole variety of different conditions, 
and a whole variety of different personal experiences and some truly uh, uh, impressive, transformative stories about people with, for example, uh, a speech impediment. Um, 1% of the adult population has a, has a speech impediment, often hidden, but sometimes not hidden. And finding, hearing their stories about how they uh, maybe in one context found working context, working environment, found that it was really difficult to succeed, they didn't feel supported, and then just with some simple changes, it perhaps more awareness by their line manager or some simple adjustments in the workplace, a whole amount of uh, uh, talent, a whole amount of potential, a whole amount really of their person mm. was realised and able to make, able to come to work and fulfil its potential. That was about speech impediment. I could say the same story about colleagues with autism or colleagues with uh, visual impairments or colleagues with mental health condition. And fundamental to this is greater willingness, openness about the condition and greater understanding by the organisation about how to support. Yeah. And that's really about culture change, isn't it? It's about changing the culture of the workplace. So we're not just seeing people as you know, units of production who sit down and get the work done. We're creating a culture in which people can come, they can speak openly about what conditions they might have or what their needs might be, and then a culture of wanting to respond to that and provide the, the support necessary. Exactly right, so that they can be themselves at work, um, that, there's, that, that it's a culture and an environment in which they uh, feel that they don't have to keep something hidden. And then there's a real business benefit from that, as there is in the whole diversity agenda of, you know, you're not just doing it because it's the right thing to do, you're doing it because actually in doing so, you get a far greater diversity of perspective, of challenge, of experience, and therefore your outcomes, particularly when you're talking about in the policy space, your outcomes are a lot better. Absolutely right. I do think it is the right thing to do, and I think for a, the civil service has got to be a values-based organisation, so that really, really matters but you're also right that it helps, to, um, it helps us actually to access more talent, more talent in our workforce and more talent that we can bring into our workforce. And for the civil service, that really, really, really matters because we have to be outstanding at identifying and developing talent. It also builds in more resilience, diversity into the workplace, more diversity of thought, of experience, which is to the benefit of everybody. And tell me, sort of thinking about um, well-being um, and resilience in this space, I'm interested in your experience as well, because you're an extremely senior civil servant, you've got an enormous span of responsibilities, you know, the Home Office really covers all the bad stuff that can happen, and lots of that could happen on your watch. Is there anything that still makes you anxious, or is there something that keeps you awake at night? Or do you take it all in your stride? No, I wouldn't say I take it all in my stride. I've done, um, uh, I've done a whole range of things just in the last few years, which I've done, had to do for the first time, uh, many of which have made me uh, a bit anxious beforehand. Um, then when you get to do them for the second time, it's, uh, it's a bit easier. So I've had to make some big speeches, um, at, you know, represent... Uh, the UK or represent the Home Office at big commemorative events where just a small error will be observed by everybody. That, that is quite nerve-wracking. I also still find, here's, here's uh, another, another example, um, I have to do quite a lot of appearing before select committees 
in the House of Commons, that can be quite a combative experience mm. and there isn't, um, not much quarter is given. So, uh, and there's scope, there's scope for making mistakes in select committees which can have long consequences. So um, I do all I can to prepare, I do all I can to stay calm, but as my superb private office would, um, uh, would know, though they'd probably never say it, I can just occasionally get a little bit nervous and maybe just a touch ratty before I walk across to yeah. the House of Commons. And they're good at f- understanding that and forgiving you for it, I'm they sure. They are fantastic yeah. and they have uh, tea and cake ready for my return. There we go. Excellent. Now, it's your first visit to New Zealand. Uh, Wellington has put on the finest of its windy weather for you. Um, But I wonder, what can you say? What have you seen so far? What are you looking forward to seeing in in the rest of your time? And what are your impressions so far of this country? Uh, As you say, it's my first visit. It's going to be a brief visit, uh, three days in total, uh, though I'm managing to squeeze in, taking a bit of my weekend just to have a quick look around Wellington Um, uh, before I head off, I have to say, wow, um, what a fantastic location for the city. So I love love the outdoors. Um, uh, I live in the middle of London, so my outdoors there is pretty much made up of of concrete and glass. Uh, But what a fantastic city. Um, I've managed... I want to go for a run. Um, I've seen the hills uh, behind uh, behind the streets, uh, I want to get out and about. Um, it's so green, so beautiful. I love the variety of uh, plants and trees, and I've even seen a few birds. Uh, so I just Lovely. think it's just, I will definitely be coming back. It's a beautiful place. I knew it would be beautiful, but actually seeing it in the flesh exceeds all my expectations. And this is only one tiny, tiny bit of the country. Thank you very much, Philip. Lovely to talk to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.